Hey folks, and Happy New Year. It's your pal, Alex Coulomb. Uh, Jacob's been traveling a lot, so we have not had time to record an Unreal Engine unofficial podcast episode yet this year, but fear not, we thought we'd release a little fun cross-promotional episode. My good pal, Michelle Obeda, just did an episode with me for her new podcast, Inflection Point, which I encourage you all to go and subscribe to on Spotify and YouTube and all those fun places. And we had a great chat, and it covered enough of the uh, the Unreal Engine side of my life with some other bonus content sprinkled in that we thought our unofficial Unreal Engine podcast listeners might enjoy it. So please, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Inflection Point Conversations. I'm Michelle Obeda, an art director and 3D artist. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing experts in the fields of art, architecture, and visualization. Together, we'll take a deep dive into the disruptive topics that have reached an inflection point in our industry. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe. You can also uh, comment and give feedback. I would love to reach more people and grow this amazing community. Okay, let's get to it. Today, I'm talking with Alex Coulomb. Alex is an architect turned ex-architect, as in VR, AR, XR, uh, crafting virtual environments and the spectacles within. Since 2016, he's run the New York-based XR creative studio Agile Lens, with an eye towards using emerging technology to craft new forms of narrative. He's worked with clients such as Epic Games, Intel, Samsung, NVIDIA, and many more. And he's worked on projects such as The Shed at Hudson Yards, Christmas Carol VR and the Four Seasons Private Residences Lake Austin, which I'd love to talk to you about. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast. And I'm very much looking forward to asking you all the questions and picking your brains. <laughs> all the questions. All the questions. Let's jump into it. So, You've been visualizing 3D spaces in real-time engines for many years now. What got you interested in Unreal Engine? Ooh, well, let, let's back up a little more even to just uh, real-time engines in the first place, because mm -hmm. I want to say that this all came from a place of deep insecurity. Uh, when I first got accepted to architecture school at Syracuse, it was very much on an art portfolio of like charcoal sketches and things that were like very, you know, rough and, and gestural. And so in my first year in architecture school, when I wasn't allowed to touch a computer, I was like, oh, I don't know how clean my drawings can be. And I did have a professor who called me Pigpen because like all my drawings <laughs> would have like little smudges and all my study models would have little bits of super glue. And I was grateful for that first year and kind of the embodied you know, tactility that came from learning to do everything by hand. But that second year, when I was finally given access to a computer, I very quickly was like, this is the only way I'm going to be able to express all these crazy ideas in my head. I'm not going to be able to do it with hand drawing or with little uh, physical models. It's going to be through these 3D applications. So, you know, I jumped really quickly into learning Rhino and 3ds Max and programs like that. But I did feel a limitation pretty quickly in what I could convey just through flat renders and even animation. So then, you know, as someone who played video games and I was like, oh, can I do like, you know, falling water and Half-Life and things like that? I was looking for any way that I could start to give someone that interactive experience of kind of finding themselves, uh, you know, in a foyer and kind of moving through a space at will and being able to kind of understand where people are drawn and what they want to look at and that more natural human behavior inside an architectural space. So the first two real-time engines I used, one was called Quest 3D, funnily enough, and the other one was called Asperient, and they were very hard to work with, but it still allowed me to create these interactive experiences, uh, which I absolutely loved. So then 
coming out of architecture school um, and getting started with virtual reality, I was in Unity. Unity was great, but then once I started to play more with Unreal Engine, roughly in 2016, 2017, around the time Datasmith started to really come into its own, that was when I really felt like I was in kind of a, a natural, uh, cozy place, for lack of a better word. Cozy feels like the wrong word for something that can crash and yeah. break <laughs> and make you cry sometimes. But uh, I really felt at home with Unreal Engine and have mostly been using that ever since. Yeah, it's great. It feels like a place that you live in. I think I understand what you mean by cozy. Um, <laughs> it also, it also definitely seems like you know, real like um, seeing a space in real time feels like the most obvious way to to view architecture, and. It kind of seems crazy that, I mean, it's great that you found it when you were studying architecture. It took me some time to find it and I think, trying to convince everyone, have you tried putting the goggles on? You understand the space so much better. <laughs> yeah, um, all of that comes so much from necessity. Like the first time we started using virtual reality in 2013, it was out of this deep frustration of trying to show clients. At the time I was working at Fisher Dax Associates Theater Planning and Design and we're showing all these theater views and trying to be like, here's four different versions of what this seat might look like, depending on some different design options. And when someone is not understanding that and they're asking kind of silly questions like, oh, why does the stage look so far away? Or why why does it seem like someone's head is so uh, close to me in front? It became such a, a nice pleasure to be able to be like, just no questions, just put this on, take a look around. And, you know, now they've got it. So it, it yeah. really was like a deep breath of uh, uh, fresh air <laughs> to have yeah. that be a tool for us. Yeah. The easiest underway, uh, easiest way to understand space, right? Yeah. Um, have you always been a big lover of new technology? Yes, I technology? have. Yeah, I mean, I remember going back to like, you know, first having a, a my early computers, I had a Macintosh in 1995 and uh, was always trying to figure out how I could like create my own games and comic books and use whatever kind of free software came with it. Uh, we had a Gateway 2000, which had... Um, uh, what was it, like milkshape 3D? There were like these little 3D modeling programs. And then when I started to do theater in high school, that was a really fun creative outlet where I was looking for ways to use technology. Uh, first of all, I had a play called La Salle d'Or, which means the golden room in uh, my senior year in high school. And in addition to trying to do some interesting things with projection mapping, because there were like 100 set changes and we were trying to, you know, convey all these different ideas with the space. When the, the play was done, I really wanted to find other ways to get it out there. So I taught myself Adobe Premiere and Adobe Encore and produced like a whole DVD with special features and secret Easter egg wow. menus. And I had so much fun just figuring out that different all those different ways of creative expression and finding a way to get this out into the world. And I think it very much was, um, you know, uh, telling that later on, I would also be, you know, in my professional life, trying to find ways to take things like theater and transform it and show it to people in all sorts of ways they've never seen it before. Yeah, I can tell your enthusiasm is bubbling. Like I can imagine that you're always <laughs> like looking for new stuff. Do you ever find it difficult to keep up with the latest, the latest oh. stuff? Yeah, it's a tidal wave. There's no way to keep up with it all. I mean, I literally on my desk here, uh, let's just point to a few things that I am so eager to play with and have not had time yet. This is the Vive Ultimate Tracker from HTC, which is a standalone inside out uh, tracking puck that doesn't require base stations. I could spend oh, wow. a week messing with this and have a ton of fun. Uh, this is attached to the uh, Bifrost Pulse 
haptic gloves, which have these great little things where if I were to put this on, I could actually simulate the sensation of like grabbing something and not being able to, you know, close my hand around it because there's resistance. Um, yeah, I've got you know, controllers, other headsets. There's a Vario XR3 here. And uh, there's just no time. So all I can do is uh, is try to keep up with it as much as I can, use it whenever I can, and to try to build it into client work. Because gen mm -hmm. genuinely, the only two times that I will actually learn something to my own satisfaction is if a client demands it or if I need to teach it. Because, you know, then you need to make sure that other people understand what it is. Uh, that's why I'm grateful to, you know, be running a XR Creative Studio and to be doing um, so much teaching these days as it forces me to do the things that I want to find time for anyway. Uh, the same thing's going to happen with the Apple Vision Pro, I'm sure. We're going to get that in and I'm going to want to spend 15 hours a day with it and maybe I'll get like 30 minutes a day. We'll see. Yeah. Tell me about uh, the XR um, Agile Lens, your uh, Creative Studio. Um Exactly what is it? So you're kind of consulting different companies on what kind of technologies that they might be using or can you can you tell me about it? Yeah, it's it's always been hard to describe Agile Lens because it's evolved so much since it was founded. The original conception was, well, hey, uh, when I was working at Fisher Dax Associates, I was very much like the VR guru who was trying to find all these ways to pre-visualize and show design options and figure out all these things about the architecture spaces before they were actually going to be built. And we thought, well, Agile Lens will do that, but just for things besides theaters and other architecture firms and other real estate companies. But then it very quickly became a thing where it's like, oh, Samsung wants us to build uh, an app for streaming 360 virtual concerts. And, you know, Intel wants this big uh, stadium experience inside Unreal. And it started to become like all these tech prototypes. And then we got to a point where it's like, well, maybe we can also do projects that don't need to exist in the real world. And they rather than just prevising things for the real world, we can really focus on the affordances of being virtual and we can make virtual architecture and virtual live shows and theater. So the easiest way for me to describe Agile Lens nowadays is a XR SWAT team. Like we're a group mm. of problem solving nerds that get brought into very complex projects that uh, usually start off with like a, is this possible? And us kind of being like, we're going to make it possible and, and figuring it out as we go. Yeah, that's great. Um, you're an authorized Unreal Engine instructor. So um, tell me why you love being an educator. I can see, I know that you love it. I think you're great at explaining stuff. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very kind of you, Michelle. Yeah, I, I love teaching. Like I'm so passionate, as, as you know, about uh, this space. And it, it is such a great joy to see someone who has a creative spark. They have something inside them that they want to communicate to the world, um, whether, you know, it's art, architecture, any kind of design or, or live performance, whatever. And they just lack the tools to convey it properly. And so to help give them those tools and then see them go out and create beautiful work, there's really nothing more satisfying than that. Um, I became an unrelenting authorized instructor kind of uh, on a lark, like during the the pandemic um, someone was like, oh, hey, you know, anyone who's got a little bit of free time, uh, fill out, you know, this survey and, and do this quiz and teach a couple test courses. And you can get like this nice badge that you can put in your emails to say, I'm an Unreal Engine authorized instructor and you look very important. And what happened was I, I did all that. Um, and then very quickly after I got contacted by Epic Games being like, hey, uh, we really like the test courses you taught. Would you like to help us create new courses and also teach some of our like favoritist clients. And that was like a really nice surprise because I, you know, obviously kept running my XR creative studio, but then almost was living this double life, helping out Epic as much as possible and really getting a nice peek behind the curtain, especially as an independent contractor. And what actually ended up happening with that was 
after teaching, I don't know, 300 different courses and creating um, 20 or so, I got to a point where I felt like I was so proud of what I was making and teaching, but it was frustrating that it was all behind this uh, this kind of wall of the clients that Epic wanted me to teach. And um, I, I managed to get a little bit of that out at Unreal Fest in 2022, where I took uh, an intro to VR course I had developed, and I got permission to give that as like a two-hour talk. And so it was like, okay, finally, we're getting like some of this information out into the public, and that's up on YouTube for anyone who wants to see it. And that felt good. But eventually I told someone over at Epic, like, you know, isn't there any way that I can teach these courses to uh, regular people? And they're like, yeah, you just have to be an authorized training center. And I was like, oh, how do I become an authorized training center? And they're like, oh, you you know, fill out this form and we'll get back <laughs> to you. And then like two days later, I had the first Unreal Engine authorized training center in all of Manhattan. So I'd like to say it is the, the best place to learn Unreal Engine in all of New York City. And that's been great because this just started a few months ago. And now we're starting to be able to share all of these courses that, again, were just for like the, the top clients of Epic for internal instruction. And uh, now I'm able to teach these courses to anyone. So that feels really good. That's awesome. Yeah, I should definitely send me the link and I'll and I'll put the link in the notes as well. Um yeah. do you do you feel like you get something out of teaching people like as well as just what you're giving? <laughs> yeah, I mean it is absolutely an excuse to uh to learn new things and also to retain things. Like I can't tell you how many times I will learn a workflow or a, a setup for something and then I will forget it like a week later even. it's You can only pack so many things in your head and at the rate that something like Unreal Engine is constantly evolving and changing, um, there's so much there. So in addition to teaching, the other thing I try to do as much as possible is like post in forums and make YouTube videos and do all these things that create kind of a record because I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but there are a lot of times when in order to understand uh, a workflow, I will go watch my own video from like six months ago <laughs> and follow along and be like, oh, yes, good job, Alex. That's a that's a good way to teach that because I like genuinely can't remember it at all. Um, and it's yeah. funny when it happens with like a forum post where I'm just searching the Internet for like, how do you, you know, debug this particular blueprint? And then I will find a forum post where I had answered that question for someone else. So, you know, it all feels like a what goes around comes around karma of circle of life kind of thing. Um, and, and certainly whenever I am actively teaching uh, a course or subject matter, it just, it just tends to stick a little bit longer. Um, and, and always the thing I like about teaching live instead of just doing YouTube videos is every single class, there is at least one moment where someone in the class teaches me something they volunteer like, Oh, actually, did you know there's a better way to do that thing? And I go, Oh my God, I didn't. Or someone asks for like a little bit of a detour and you go down this other path and you start to discover other new things. So the the improvisational nature of that is really exciting. Yeah, I can imagine also, you know, finding people who have slightly different experience to you and asking, you know, especially with real time, I feel like, and like kind of uh, VR and AR and XR stuff, um, people have slightly different challenges that you haven't never tackled before. Do you find them a bit like a puzzle that you want to that you want to solve. <laughs> yeah. And, and a cool thing about Unreal Engine too is because it is so deep and wide and vast and whatever, um, anyone can kind of become a subject matter expert in anything they want fairly quick. If you decide like, I want to be the, the foremost expert on Unreal Engine, Niagara particle simulations in AR for medical applications, like as soon as you have kind of like three categories you're trying to combine, you could probably become like the best at that in the world it may be a week if you like really went down that rabbit hole. Now, the only problem is because of how quickly you become the top expert in this thing, you very quickly run out of people to ask for help. 
And, uh, and that can certainly be a challenge when you're like, oh, I'm in a weird territory that no one has been in before. But, you know, it's all very fun. And it's so satisfying when you do feel like you've hit on something that is a little pioneering and no one has quite tried before. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about and watching uh, a great documentary uh, called Light and Magic about the early days of industrial light and magic and how much it just felt like everyone was trying stuff out and seeing if it worked and some of it did and some of it didn't. And I, I try to stay in that headspace as much as possible where everything is always new and exciting and where we're, you know, we don't know going into something what the result will be. Yeah, it's, it's scary mm. and it's surprising, but uh, we always seem to take some kind of pleasure out of it. Yeah, I think it's a great attitude to have, especially in our industry. I think almost everyone that I know who has learned some new tool, which is pretty much everyone, has has relied on videos that someone's put up on YouTube, you know, and you just think, what angels have just decided to put up in a video for free to teach me something? And, you know, there's everything that I've learned in the past, like 20 plus years has been, you know, like, how, I'm stuck on this thing. How do I do this thing? And someone's got a video and like... How how great is that? Like, so I mean, from from everyone on the internet, like, thanks for being one of those people who put your you know put your energies out there. Um, do you think architectural design and visualization is going in the direction of real time? I know that you you saw the potential from the beginning, but have you noticed a trend in other people doing the same? Yes, for sure. I mean, certainly the one of the golden eggs. That's not really the right thing. But one of the golden eggs of architectural design and visualization is, you know, how close can you get to what this building is going to look like before it's actually under construction? And, you know, for many, many years, we've relied on render farms and getting like very nice V-Ray renders that uh, really hit on that level of photorealism. And the fact of the matter is we're getting closer and closer to being able to achieve that level of quality in real time. Even nowadays in Unreal Engine, um, at any given moment, you can turn on the path tracer and the path tracer is going to give you kind of this ground truth reference uh, with full ray tracing on for what everything is going to look like. And it's still not real time, so you wouldn't necessarily turn that on all the time. You might use it to render out some stills, but it's useful because at any given moment, you know, inevitably you're using some tricks when you're trying to optimize for real time, but to be able to keep going back and forth between whatever you're looking at in the engine and then what that ground truth reference looks like, um, you can get closer and closer to it. So you start to notice like, oh, the GI is a little bit weird in this corner. I'm just going to bring like a little invisible point light over there and, you know, have it uh, on one lighting channel. And it's just going to get it closer to how things look, because uh, it, it's not necessarily that you need to chase photorealism, like what it actually looks like in the real world, but it needs to be consistent within its own space. And that's the other thing I try to make sure people understand coming into these new tools. It's like, if you're a photographer, if you're an artist, if you understand composition and rule of thirds and the golden ratio or whatever, all these kinds of things, like it's not going to be very long before you're creating something that looks really amazing in something like Unreal Engine, because it's all still based on those principles. Tell me about your VR theater shows. I mean, they <laughs> seem really fantastic and I've seen a bunch of stills and I would love to see one at some point. But you had the Christmas Carol yeah. one recently and I saw that you've had quite a few now for the last couple of years. You've been put, did, um, how did that start? Did that start yeah. in the pandemic? You know, uh, not really, actually. No, it, we can go back to 2018 or even before that, just to give a little bit of like a, an origin story for it. When I was um, studying abroad in London, both architecture and theater back in 2008, I had this incredible theater professor who had all these connections across London. And we went to like, you know, two to three shows per week, uh, the entire semester, there were dance and opera and straight theater and musicals and, and 
concert performances. And he always got us into the first like two or three rows, which was incredible because these are world class performers at the top of their game. And I had never understood up to that point what a difference it makes to be close to someone who's like sweating and like pouring their heart into something. It doesn't read as well when you're in the nosebleed seats. And so I came away from that semester being like, that was amazing. I will never have an experience like that again for the rest of my life. Many people in the world will never have that experience even once. Is there any way technology could start to democratize that and give more people that kind of sensation? So, you know, 2008 pre when I was using any kind of AR or VR. But when I did start to play with that, uh, and I started to mess with like putting, you know, animations, even stock animations of characters on the stage and getting up really close to them in virtual reality. It was like, well, there's something compelling about this. And the fact that you could have, in theory, infinite people doing this and you can have a live show and that could be live mocap. We started to do more of those explorations. So in 2018, um, I was at a conference in Boston with Philip Rosedale, who was the founder of Second Life. And he had a platform called High Fidelity, which was kind of like um, a social VR version of Second Life. And now we have VR Chat and uh, Rec Room and, and you know some of these other worlds that are similar. But we struck up a conversation about live performances in virtual reality. And he liked the cut of my jib, I guess, and asked if I'd be interested in getting together like a team of people in New York City to study what makes a compelling live performance. And so very fortunate to get a, a bunch of amazing people in the New York City area to work on this for really a solid year and a half where we were all looking at um, different avatars. We have like a, a paper published with IEEE Gem called Avatar uh, Selections in VR. And we were looking at like, you know, should it look like a theater? Should it look like something else? What should the performer audience dynamic be like? Um, you know, how much do you want it like stylized avatars versus the Uncanny Valley? What kind of genres of shows do you want to do? You know, let's do a scene from The Wire. Let's do a scene from Shakespeare. And one thing we discovered pretty quickly was the performers who were most compelling to watch inside virtual reality were the ones who had some proper improv, you know, unscripted training and knew how to respond to things going wrong. Because to this day, there will always be something weird that happens that's unexpected in a show with this much tech and these many potential points of failure. So the most important thing is that the people who are putting on the show and entertaining the audience have ways of responding to that and making light of it and having a sense of, you know, the show must go on. Um, so we've been really lucky to work with some super talented performers over the past few years who do that. Now, when High Fidelity actually shut down, um, we most of us went over to uh, uh, Mozilla Hubs because that's a very accessible WebXR platform that works in or out of VR. Um, some of our collaborators went over to VR Chat. But very quickly, I got to that point where I wanted to chase that fidelity of like really understanding the nuance of a performer and facial expression and how well you could get that out of digital humans. Now, most of the social VR platforms out there were trying to make things as optimized as possible and to run on standalone VR devices. So, you know, the avatars were, were definitely stylized and not that expressive. And this was around the time we were getting more and more into Unreal Engine. And then by the time MetaHumans came out in, I guess, yeah, 2020 or 2021, uh, that felt like a total revelation in terms of how easy it would be to create characters that look a certain way. And, you know, using live link face on your phone, using a, a variety of body capture apps, you could start to get this really powerful performance. Um, so just very briefly in the past couple of years, some of the, the highlight shows have been uh, working with Actors Theatre of Louisville for Christmas Carol VR, which we've done three times now. And that involves um, Ari Tar performing as Scrooge and Dickens and all these other characters in a, a full body mocap suit. Um, we used to have him in Live Link Base. Now we have him in VR and he's acting alongside Debbie Deer, who is playing all the ghosts also in VR. 
makes such a difference when the performers can like look at each other and feel expressive. And then we also did a show with Mikhail Baryshnikov and Jessica Hecht in New York City called The Orchard Off-Broadway. So this was a take wow. on Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. And that was a blast. And that was, you know, an Unreal Engine digital twin of the actual space that a virtual audience from around the world could experience as part of the show. So, you know, a couple of things that are a theme through all this is accessibility. We want as many people to experience these shows as possible and that real sense of liveness that like this is happening now. This is something we're all sharing in together. And there's a co-presence to all that that is really quite powerful, even in a virtual space. Yeah. And this is happening um, solely virtually. So, I mean, are there actual people sitting in the audience as well? Or is yeah. It so great question. So for the Orchard Off-Broadway and the first production of Christmas Carol in 2021, uh, those did have physical theaters with physical performances. Um, then Actors Theater very kindly let us kind of go wild with the VR script. So for the past two years of doing Christmas Carol VR, that's been, you know, our actors performing out of their homes, no physical venue besides the fact that we premiered um, Christmas Carol this year at Filmgate Miami. So there was kind of like a little in-person premiere. But for the most part, this is all audience members at home in a VR headset or on their computers or watching a cinematic live stream on YouTube. Um, and uh, and the yeah performers just doing it from their homes, which is very convenient. And the performers, are, this is this is so fascinating to me because I'm trying to picture it. The performers are in their separate homes yeah. and they're doing it live. So they're, I guess, one performer seeing the other. Scrooge is like seeing the ghost right in front of him. Wow. That's so cool. That's such a great idea of like, um, I haven't heard of it before. Have there been any precedents before or is it something that you sort of started doing? Yeah, I, I think we're the only company that's trying to do it with this level of performance capture, uh, certainly in Unreal Engine. The probably best precedent that I still think of as kind of a golden standard is a VR experience called the Under Presents. And this was created by Tender Claws, who now is uh, hard at work creating a virtual reality adaptation of Stranger Things, which I'm very excited for. But in the Under Presents, this was a, a very stylized, very simple live event platform um, where, you know, the faces don't even move. You know, these characters are like very straightforward, but they did such a good job of building out this world with its own mythology. And the fun thing is, um, even when there's not a live show going on, you can go into the under presents and you're going to see the other audience members. And there's like puzzles to solve and this whole world to explore. But at any given moment, there might actually be a live performer who is just kind of like hanging out. So all the actors have the ability to like change their avatars and actually speak. Uh, the audience members cannot speak. And there's all these like little adventures you can go on. And then after just kind of that being the, the ambient uh, mode of the world for so long, they then put on a production of The Tempest, you know, by Shakespeare. And that was like actually, you know, ticketed with scheduled performances. And you could have up to, I think, like eight people come see um, a show. Now, one of the things we're trying to solve very much is the scaling problem because there's a lot of other great companies like um, the Ferryman Collective and Metamovie who are doing uh, VR performances right now in VR chat and Resonite. But there is very much a cap on how many people can see those shows um, because these social VR platforms are not designed for big live experiences. You know, they're made for like you to hang out with a few friends. So we are working very hard using our own kind of proprietary multiplayer platform in Unreal Engine to make it so you can have a thousand people all in the same experience at the same time. Um, we just have to figure out all the right tricks to do that without crashing everything. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and do you get people who are attending globally, like around the world as well? 
Yeah, it's really cool. So when we have different views depending on how someone joins the show. So if you're a stage manager or like a crew build, you can see the IP addresses of everyone. And, and actually, there's some kind of ways to for even an audience member to have some idea of where people are, um, because all everyone's avatar is going to be color coded for Christmas Carol based on their location in the world. So, you know, we could have actually released a key that's like, if you see a red avatar, they're in Australia or whatever. Um, so it was kind of fun to code things that way. But then people also had a way of, you know, communicating with each other. We did like the way the underpresents keeps everyone muted, but we also allowed people to have a way to do uh, speech to text or use their keyboard to send little messages out that other people could see. Um, so it was very fun because also our live performers can, you know, also see those messages and they can respond to it. They don't always need to be like perfectly on book. Uh, the whole Christmas Carol production is very much as a Dickensian recital. So Arias Charles Dickens is kind of telling the whole story to the audience. He knows the audience is there and there's plenty of opportunities for him to stop and be like, ah, yes, Marcus, that is a very <laughs> ridiculous thing about the 1800s, whatever. <laughs> um, tell me about the Four Seasons Private Residence um, project that you you presented um, at 3DNY. Can you tell me about that project? Yeah, yeah. I was really thrilled to talk about that really for the first time at 3DNY and then got to do a longer presentation uh, with Jose from Pure Blink and from Neil Griffiths from D-Box over at Unreal Fest. So there's like a whole hour-long talk just about that. So this was an interesting project because uh, last year, right around the time we were doing The Orchard Off-Broadway, I started to hear all these kind of rumblings of this really ambitious virtual reality project um, that wanted to be like the most photoreal VR project that had ever come about. And I started to hear from like Jeff Model and Kim Bauman Larson and Paul DeBevick and Shane Scranton, who all like knew something about this project and were all like, Alex, this might be a good fit for Agile Lens. And I was trying to find a way to actually, you know, learn more about the project, but I never quite heard like who the client was. Um, and finally, I believe it was uh, Vikas Reddy and Jeff Powers who actually connected me to Jonathan Kuhn, the client. And we sat down and he told me his, you know, ambitions for the project. And it sounded amazing. And I heard that like D-Box was, you know, the creative director for the whole project. And Matthew Bannister and everyone had already done such a good job visualizing what they wanted out of this and already had a very clear idea of why they thought virtual reality was going to be the only way to properly sell the project. So, you know, they'd already been on the project for four years and we get to come in at the, the tail end of it and, and help visualize this incredible project. So something funny that happened was... Um, around November of last year, uh, we thought that we had basically been hired. So, you know, we, we made this arrangement to do all this research and development and to help pick out, like, here's the version of Unreal we'll use and here's um, uh, the, the headset we'll use and here's what the timeline looks like. Unbeknownst to us, that D-Box and Jonathan Kuhn, very cleverly in retrospect, had actually hired something like 11 different companies to all basically do exactly the same thing, to do like the oh, same scene, oh. the same visualization, <laughs> the same research. And uh, it was a great like litmus test for them to see like who really knew their stuff and who seemed like the best fit for the project. Now, they only planned on hiring one company, but what became clear after this kind of uh, probationary period was that PureBlink out of Toronto and Agile Lens were both very good fits for this project, but in very different ways. PureBlink had such a great handle on the ArcViz side and the beauty of, you know, taking what D-Box had done with billions of polygons and letting things render for thousands of hours and making that work in real time in virtual reality and having these beautiful Unreal Engine scenes. Uh, and then Agile Lens was was noted by Jonathan as, as kind of being this XR SWAT team. He very kindly did call us XR SEAL Team 6 at one point, which I was proud of, <laughs> um, which, you know, he saw that we could come in and find these, these tech 
hurdles that like no one had ever been able to solve before and make those things happen. So, you know, the the handoff process was basically like Dbox has these incredible 3ds Max files. They're going to PureBlink. PureBlink is setting up each of these Unreal Engine projects. And then Agile Lens needed to be on site in Austin, Texas, helping to build out this 5,000 square foot, $2 million holodeck, this uh, this whole showroom that needed to be able to allow people to walk from like one end of part of the project to the other, no artificial locomotion. And Agile Lens needed to set this up to work perfectly with local multiplayer, with the ability to walk in a wireless headset from one end of the room to the other, um, for the host to have all the right controls for everything from like how long is the tour lasted to, you know, vibrate, having a controller that vibrates when the next scene is loaded and having all these interstitial spaces. So it was this really complex puzzle to solve that we thought would be over like, you know, we thought this would be like a January to March project. And lo and behold, here we are in January of the next year. And we're still working on it. Not quite at the pace uh -huh. we were of a, a year ago, but there's still, you know, plenty of exciting problems to solve because Jonathan being the very discerning client he is, uh, sees all the ways that these things can continually be improved. And part of it is just, you know, stuff that takes a, a while to develop. And so, some of it is there's new headsets coming out. There's new hardware. There's new software. There's new potential ways of tracking headsets in the environment. Um, right now, all the local multiplayer is handled by OptiTrack, which is a very complex system, usually used for motion capture. And instead, um, we are starting to look at things like, you know, uh, these all-in-one trackers, like maybe we can put one of these on each of the headsets and that will be accurate enough to know where everyone is at any given moment. But uh, yeah, it's been quite a process and we're uh, definitely proud of, of all the teams and everyone who's been involved with this and would love to be able to find more opportunities going back to education to kind of share the wealth of knowledge that we've all learned uh, trying to make this project look and feel as good as possible. Yeah, is it still a... Um... Is it still a showroom that's in Austin at the moment? And is it open to the public or no? Yeah, it's not really open to the public. You do need kind of a, a special invite to be able to get into there. We were able to get uh, Elizabeth Stark over, which was great. Um, but it is kind of like you have to know someone or you need to be, you know, a prospective client, noting that the cheapest uh, residences at the Four Seasons private residences like Austin is $4 million. And that goes all the way up to the super penthouse, which is $50 million. So, you know, <laughs> it was certainly a big challenge to be like, can we help make this VR experience that is going to give people enough confidence in this project that has barely broken ground that they're actually going to sign a check to, to put down a substantial deposit on uh, one of these spaces. Right. And they'll, I guess they'll keep it there live until they fill the spaces. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I could talk about for an hour is all the challenges that came from the fact that this 5,000 square foot showroom is in a tent. Uh, it's not really in a building, and that causes all sorts of problems with, you know, wind. It's up at the top of a cliff. Um, sure. So certainly if the whole thing could be moved to like a stable structure, that would solve a lot of problems on its own. But it's one of these like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I think we've gotten it to the point where it's actually working really well in the tent, surprisingly, because um, the original plans were like, yeah, we'll probably tear this down in October, but there's still tours going and there's still a lot of prospective buyers. So I think until uh, there's there's a really good reason to get out of there, it's going to keep running. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Alex, what advice would you give someone who wants to get into VR and AR and where should they start? Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of, of the question people ask about like getting started with like coding and or, or any kind of new skill, which always makes me think of what my dad uh, would tell me when I started playing 
uh, musical instruments when I was a kid. The problem, of course, was in music class growing up, it was always like, learn your scales, you know, do a pentatonic scale on guitar. Or like, I remember taking a guitar class for the first time and just being told, like, hold a C chord and me like almost crying, being like, it hurts my fingers so much. And I think a lot of people think that when you're going to learn a new skill that there is uh, an inherent pain to it, which, yeah, maybe if you're like really grinding at it, but there should be a joy. There needs to be some kind of spark of joy because that's what's going to get you through it when there isn't someone cracking a whip behind you and you really want to learn this yourself. So with guitar, for example, uh, I remember when my dad said one time, he's like, well, why do you find like three chords? He, he said two things. He said, find like three chords to learn. And there's a whole bunch of songs you could play with those three chords. And then he also said, like, let's pick a song you really like and, you know, learn that particular song. And that did so much for me in, in my journey of, of becoming a musician, because that gave me like a light at the end of the tunnel or something to hold on to that was really exciting. So similarly with like um, uh, coding, there was this moment of learning what I, I kind of felt were like the equivalent of power chords for coding, where it's like, oh, if I can learn how to have an array of different objects and I can cycle through them and turn them all off and turn on one at a time, like that's huge. There's so many things I can do with like just that ability. Um, so coming into real time, coming into all these tools, it can seem so overwhelming. But if you can start with like a very clear task you are trying to accomplish, um, then there's usually a fairly straight line toward it. Don't be too ambitious. You know, it's like the same advice you'd give anyone who wants to write a book or um, or uh, create their first video game. Like if you if you try to go out there and say like, I'm going to make Grand Theft Auto all by myself. Maybe you start with the Matrix City sample in Unreal Engine and you can get pretty far. Uh, and there's a whole other discussion to be had about kit bashing, which is a talent in itself. But I would advise start simple, start clean. Uh, because here's the thing, too, is if you if you try to think like, I want to go on this 10 year journey, like that's going to seem really overwhelming. But if you're like, I just want to learn how to do this one thing, you keep it really simple. Then what you'll probably find is after you learn that one thing, you might go, you know, that wasn't as hard as I thought. Or you go, well, now that I know how to do this thing, boy, it sure would be better if I took my little, you know, Super Mario clone and added uh, the squirrel suit for it. And now, you know, I can make him fly or whatever. Like you just start thinking of that, like maybe I can just do this one more thing. And like that happened to me with playing guitar where it was like, I'll just learn three chords. And then it's like, well, maybe I'll learn this cool variation of a, you know, C mixolydian chord or something like that. And you get yeah. more and more complicated. And before you know it, you learned all these things. And, and I always think of it as, as tools, like you're adding all these tools to your tool belt. And then suddenly you get confronted with a new problem. And it's like, oh, I, I guess this wants a, a screwdriver first and then a hammer and then a chainsaw and then, you know, a, a laser gun, whatever. <laughs> so that's yeah. always very fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. I think, I think, you know, start small, less intimidating and be really excited about the thing that you're working on. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And I want to ask you about your your podcast. You have a fantastic podcast called the Unofficial Unreal Engine Podcast, where people can hear you and your co-host. What's your co-host's name? Jacob Feldman. Jacob Feldman chat all about different different topics with Unreal. Tell me about that. How long have you been doing that for? Yeah, we've been doing it for uh, about a year and a half now. Um, it very much. I have to give full credit to Jacob because he. Uh, used to be an authorized Unreal Engine instructor with me, and then he got too busy with his job at uh, CoreWeave, which is a major like cloud computing pixel streaming company, and he wasn't finding as much time to be in Unreal Engine. So he's like, hey, Alex, I really like talking to you about Unreal Engine things, and uh, and I, I miss being in Unreal Engine more, and wouldn't it be great if we found a regular time to talk about Unreal Engine things? And also, as long as we're doing that, 
why don't we just record it? And I was like, oh, interesting. Because I'd, I'd done a couple attempts at a podcast before. Like um, I did one called XR Dad for a while, which was mm-hmm. a really fun back and forth with my friend Logan Smith, where we'd show each other interesting things we were doing with our kids in VR. And it was great, but it was also like a lot of production work and we you know, didn't have enough time for it. So the thing that I think has kept Jacob and I running as long as we have is uh, kind of the simplicity of like, you know, we're just talking about Unreal Engine. Maybe we have a special guest. Maybe we don't. Maybe we are um, uh, show screen sharing and showing some other cool stuff and maybe not. But we try to keep the whole thing pretty low key. And it's been great. And it's also, you know, another one of these instances where it's like, oh, you know, there's some new Unreal Engine news this week. I better learn enough about it so we can talk mm. about it on the podcast. So again, I'm I'm fighting this natural procrastination or, or laziness I have buried deep inside me and trying to, you know, move it along by being like, well, I don't want to embarrass myself by sounding uninformed about this. Uh, So it's been a lot of fun. We have a good time. I don't think anyone could accuse you of being lazy. I feel like you have like your finger on the pulse of like all the different technologies and so much enthusiasm to go with it, which is amazing and actually really infectious. I think maybe we should all go back and look at your previous posts and learn everything from the beginning. Oh, nice. Thank you. (laughs) Well, it's a good time to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for coming on and, I mean, talking to us, just scratching the surface of all the little things that you've been involved in. Um, I'll put in links to like all the different projects that you've been working on and I think people should check out your work. Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. And just for anyone who's uh, like, I'm not going to go look at links. I'm just going to listen to the audio. Some key things would be uh, agilelens.com. Um, on Twitter and YouTube, I'm at ibrews, I-B-R-E-W-S. My Unreal Engine Authorized Training Center for New York City is at alexcoulombpresents.com. Good luck spelling my last name. You have to at least see that in the show notes. And I love having these kinds of conversations. If anyone ever wants to reach out and chat about um, any of the the wonderful myriad of topics Michelle and I have covered today, uh, always happy to do so. So thanks again, Michelle. This was very fun. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Alex. That's great. <laughs>